Welcome to another edition of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the channel that compares what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Today I have the unique uh, privilege of having Doug Guyvett and Holly Pivik on to talk about their latest book, Counterfeit Kingdom. Uh, if you remember back at the end of November, early December, I did an entire video walking through the different chapters of the book because I think this is probably one of the most important books that has been published within in the last year. And if you do not already have a copy of this book, you know, we'll put a link down below where you can uh, you can attain a copy of it for yourself worth the read. But uh, let's see here. Doug Guyvett, Holly Pivot, good to have you on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Chris. <laughs> All right. So uh, you saw my review of your book. I, I gave you a favorable, glowing review, and, and I will not back down. This is such an important book. And the discussion of the New Apostolic Reformation is one that is controversial because uh, uh, those with kind of trapped within the theology of the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, there's a lot of rhetoric uh, about folks like you and I. Now, I, I'm apparently like a, a meanie boogerhead because I'm a discernment guy. And, and discernment now is like a four-letter word. Uh, but uh, I think of Daniel Kalenda. And Daniel Kalenda, he put out a video about seven, eight months ago where he was talking about the New Apostolic Reformation, and he made some claims. In fact, I'd like to get you guys' uh, feedback on these claims to see if if, uh, if they, at least they square with the truth with you guys. All right, so Daniel Kalenda, this is from his video. He talks about where the concept of the New Apostolic Reformation comes from. So uh, let's, let's listen into his explanation. So if you listen to my previous podcast called What is the NAR and Am I a Part of It? I discussed what has become known as the New Apostolic Reformation which when you boil it all down, it basically amounts to a sort of Illuminati-type conspiracy theory that was started by the secular liberal media to demonize Republican candidates who were associating with charismatic and Pentecostal ministers around the time of the 2008 presidential election in the U.S. And so in order to do this, they basically drew on some terminology coined by a preacher named Peter Wagner. They conflated a number of other unrelated theological issues like post-millennialism, Seven Mountains teaching and some standard charismatic and Pentecostal theology. And then they combined all of this with what they saw as fringe political positions, like those that were being represented by what was known at the time as the Tea Party. So, for example, some of the things that they saw as fringe political views were things like a preference for small government and opposition to abortion and traditional family values and things like that. And so later on, this conspiracy theory was adopted by heresy-hunting evangelicals who then took it a step further and tried to use it to paint charismatics and Pentecostals not only as heretical and unorthodox, as they'd always been doing, but now they could characterize us as dangerous and nefarious as well. Now, I'm not going to open up that can of worms again. All right. Now, I, I think you get the idea. So, so Holly, let me ask you. I mean, uh, you've been covering the NAR as long as I've been on uh, online doing discernment work. Uh, how, how instrumental was that liberal media conspiracy theory in your formation of your critiques against the New Apostolic Reformation? It wasn't at all. Um, I, as you say, you know, I was um, covering the NAR even before the liberal media started making these critiques. And, and so, um, and, you know, he said a, a, a number of other things there. He said that the liberal media has taken things that are non-standard Pentecostal charismatic 
theology and mm-hmm. and um, lumped it together or, you know, has said that's the NER. But then he cited the Seven Mountain Mandate as an example of that. Well, the Seven Mountain Mandate is not standard Pentecostal charismatic teaching. And so that's an example of something that's that has come through the New Apostolic Reformation. And and so that's one thing that that these people who like Daniel Kalinda have been doing as is they've been saying that, um, you know, well, this is just standard charismatic teaching when when the things that he and other NAR leaders are promoting are not just standard Pentecostal charismatic theology. These are things about that about authoritative apostles and prophets and bringing the new revelation, such as the seven mountain mandate. Um, and, and, you know, Daniel Kalinda is continuing. We, we point this out in our book that what the leaders in this movement are doing, one thing they do, a tactic they do is name calling, you know, they mm-hmm. refer to critics as heresy hunters and, and give us these disparaging labels for people who are just bringing up concerns about, about the NAR and, and questioning and asking, you know, do these teachings line up with scripture? Um, but it's a it's a common tactic, unfortunately, that Daniel Kalinda and others have have been doing and, and uh, where they they say, well, the critics are just conspiracy theorists and and they're heresy hunters. And rather than dealing with the substance of the the our concerns. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and, and Doug, you know, you, you and Holly have written several books on the New Apostolic Reformation. And I note that uh, this particular book, uh, the, uh, the the Counterfeit Kingdom, uh, is a wonderful compendium to the book that you wrote on the New Apostolic Reformation. The New Apostolic Reformation dealt with doctrines. Uh, this really has to deal with practices. And, and so uh, it, it, what I find fascinating is, is their claim that somehow we've taken Taken, uh, you know these these concepts that are laid out in the doctrinal book that you guys published, and have somehow conflated them as if somehow the New Apostolic Reformation is this monolithic thing, kind of like a a, a, a church denomination. Does every church that's part of the New Apostolic Reformation believe and do the same things? No. The simple answer to that question is that they do not. There are certain unifying uh, trends within the New Apostolic Reformation, which, by the way, uh, Holly and I have never called a conspiracy. We've never used that terminology. And yet uh, people have said about us that we we are uh, accusing parties of entering into a conspiracy here. Actually, there's a sense in which I think it's more nefarious even than that. Um, okay. Because this is a, a spiritual, uh, spiritually significant phenomenon where there are people who are united in believing certain things and they're teaching these things and then communicating a, a, a counterfeit conception of the kingdom of God in the world today and people are suffering as a result. Now, that doesn't mean that they are collaborating with each other, but they do network with each other. They do share a vocabulary. They do have many practices and specific teachings in common. And this is what makes them a social movement and a phenomenon to be reckoned with, a force to be reckoned with. But of course, Daniel Kalenda has his facts wrong. His description is mistaken. And we don't call it a conspiracy. His timetable is off. Like Holly said, we've been uh, drawing attention to these things for quite a few years now. And that's documentable because our books have uh, copyright dates on them. So, yeah, you can tell that uh, the the political dimensions of the new apostolic reformation, the secular media concerns about those are are not part of our uh, concern, uh, the dominant concern for us. And we haven't borrowed anything from them. 
if anything, uh, they have come to us periodically uh, because they know of our work and have wanted our perspective. Newsweek, for example, uh, mm -hmm. issued an article about NAR and Christian nationalism, and they asked for our comments. So that was last fall. So uh, right. he's got yeah. that wrong. And I just wanted to comment on why this is. Uh, this is a, an attempt to reframe the narrative and to portray what is true of NAR as if it is mainstream. This has always been the case, and I'm not alarmed by this because my feeling is that if your listeners and others just read our books and then go back and watch the Kalenda video, they will see that he is not engaging the real issues. It is subterfuge and it is designed to distract attention from the main issues and create a new narrative that NAR figures that we name uh, are mainstream and, um, and part of sort of typical traditional charismatic uh, teaching. So now to come back to your question, I do want to say, I want to emphasize that we've, we've also acknowledged that as a movement, uh, there are some uh, disparities among the parties so that they don't all, you know, reason in the same way, quote the same passages, but there are sort of certain core things that they, they have in common. And the one that we emphasize the most is their view of apostles and prophets. That is, mm -hmm. that apostles and, and prophets are now part of the uh, governance of the church, and they exercise extraordinary authority through their uh, covering of congregations and individuals as uh, apostolic figures and uh, through the new revelations that they receive which are for the end times and some are restorationists they believe that uh, apostles and prophets disappeared from the scene and now they're being restored uh, others will say no uh, the language is being recaptured but they've always been around we've had apostles and prophets functionally for quite some time people who never regarded themselves as, as apostles and prophets uh, really were apostolic and prophetic in their ministries. And so we're not restoring something. But this is a little bit uh, strained as well. So even when they will deliberately uh, claim that they uh, do not believe something that has been attributed to them, oftentimes that depends on the sense in which you're using the language. And so now right. there's a tendency to try to get away from, uh, uh, some will try to get away from uh, calling themselves apostles, and they will speak of the apostolic function as if that uh, mitigates the problem. Yeah, no, actually, I, I think that actually makes things worse. Uh, so, Holly, let me ask you a question. In, in the book, you you talk about this uh, directly. Does Ephesians chapter 4, in talking about what people are calling the fivefold ministry, does it lay out the church's government? Is that the whole purpose of that text in Ephesians 4, where God, uh, where Christ has given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and things like this? Is that what that is about? No, it's not. And Ephesians four is is the basically single verse that that our leaders have taken and taken out of context and built their entire movement upon this verse. Um, you know, and th this verse, Ephesians four eleven, that God give apostles, prophets. You know, Christ give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Says nothing about offices, governing offices. It's not setting up this hierarchical or this formal system of church government made up of five offices that are supposed to, you know, lead the church through all, 
all the centuries and and it's going way beyond uh what's what's there in the text and and which says nothing at all about about this notion of of offices or doesn't speak to church government yeah uh, they, they take, they take a, a passage out of context distort its significance and then they turn it into a manifesto for the church in the end times yeah, you're right. Now, let me ask you this, Doug. Um, so I, I, when I read scripture, I see that the apostle Paul is called an apostle. I see that Barnabas is called an apostle. I see that Peter is called an apostle. So is John. What's the difference between them? Because you'll note that Barnabas, he his epistle didn't make the cut to be in the New Testament. Why Barnabas is why is Barnabas's epistle exed out of the scripture? Whereas the Apostle Paul, everything that we can find that he's written is, uh, is, is placed into the Scripture. Well, it is true that uh, the Apostles of Jesus, the Apostles of Christ, the Twelve, uh, one of them being replaced, Judas Iscariot, by Matthias uh, uh, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus and before his ascension, uh, to complete the number Twelve. And then the Apostle Paul are Apostles of Christ, who uh, defend their apostleship in very striking ways. And Paul especially, because as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was one untimely born. He was kind of a late arrival to the scene. And three times the, uh, the conversion of Paul to Jesus Christ, whom he was persecuting through his persecution of the church, was converted on his way to Damascus. And, and three times that, that conversion experience and reality is documented in the book of Acts by, by Luke, the author. And Paul, in his epistles, is very intent on defending his apostleship because of the authority that accompanies that apostleship. And he uh, meets all of the same conditions for being an apostle that the original 12 did. And so mm -hmm. that's how he gets access. But it's also true that the apostles themselves, the others, um, acknowledged Paul's authority and uh, received him into the church under that authority. So he had their imprimatur as well. Now, there were others who are called apostles, but that's because the term apostle has a very general sense to mean uh, someone who is sent as an emissary, an ambassador, a messenger, someone who represents someone else, another party. The apostles of Christ, of course, represent Jesus Christ personally as those who are commissioned to exercise that authority in the world. And then there are apostles of the churches who were sent out and yeah. performed various functions. And we believe that Barnabas and others who are named as apostles, not that they're the only ones, but they are explicitly mentioned by name, function yeah. in this capacity as apostles of the church and did not uh, exercise the same authority that the, the Twelve and Paul did. Now, this is important because this suggests that there are two basic kinds or two basic uh, categories of apostle, but uh, neither one of these is going to fit what the apostles of the NAR movement uh, claim for themselves. Uh, for example, uh, they are not um, free to just make declarations and write books and documents that could be incorporated into the canon of Scripture, and most of them acknowledge that they're not authorized to write Scripture, and they think that's pretty, pretty much the main difference between themselves and, and the Twelve and Paul. Uh, but they do arrogate to themselves, notice the language I've used, because yep. it's not found in Scripture, a kind of authority that exceeds what Barnabas and the others had as apostles of the churches. So they've invented another category of apostle 
that's supposed to be somehow very close to being what a New Testament apostle of Christ is, um, but not quite because of the revelation issue, the canon issue, but uh, much more authoritative in their governing uh, power and authority um, and in their capacity to, 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 produce, to provide revelations uh, and activate people in the miraculous, uh, which is different than what the other apostles of the New Testament did. So this is a new category that's been invented, and it's one, this is new, it's not even being restored to the church, notice. Even the yeah. restorationists would be wrong in calling this a restoration of a category of apostle that's in the Bible, since it's not. And the second is that it's not a continuation of what, you know, George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards or J uh, Martin Luther or Ulrich Zwingli or any of the these leading figures of the of the church, Protestant and Catholic, if you like, who, um, you know, performed apostolic functions according to NAR leaders. Uh, they would never have thought of themselves as having the kind of apostolic authority that these people presume to have themselves. Yeah, you're absolutely right. W one of the things I notice about the Apostle Paul is that Peter himself in 2 Peter acknowledges his epistles as scripture and uh, and notes that people twist his words uh, like they do the other scriptures really kind of to their own destruction. But the other thing that's unique about the Apostle Paul, and you can see this clearly in 1 Corinthians, is that the Apostle Paul speaks with such an authority that he can write something and it must be viewed as a command of the Lord. He even says so, that you know, if anyone is spiritual, he needs to acknowledge that the things I I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord, which makes him a, a, an apostle of a type that is uh, that is well so unique because you know as far as I know it's the twelve plus the apostle Paul who really had that authority. They were apostles of Jesus Christ in a way that they can literally give commands on uh, with Jesus's backing, and he's and and uh, and these are commands of the Lord, not just the opinions of the Apostle Paul. That's a great point, Chris, and we can we can build on that uh, with the following, and that is that uh, Paul knew the difference between when he was speaking for the Lord and when he was speaking um, his own view of things and, not, yep. and did not have a word from the Lord. And he makes explicit, he draws explicit attention to those occasions when he knows that what he's saying is a function of his own wisdom, and he's offering it as counsel, but he is claiming that it is from himself and not from the Lord. Otherwise, it is. Now, this mm -hmm. is striking to me because uh, two things. First, Paul knows the difference when he's speaking between whether it's a word from the Lord and whether it's not. This is something that new uh, apostles and prophets seem to have some trouble with because they acknowledge that they get things wrong at times, even with uh, predictive prophecy. And so they say, well, you know, I guess I missed on that one, and uh, I, it wasn't from the Lord after all. Well, Paul would never be caught dead uh, making a statement like that. <laughs> nope. Now, another nope. thing to say on this point is that uh, they also hedge their bets. In their writings, they talk very authoritatively, and they posture themselves as individuals who have authority that you could not really distinguish from the kind that Paul projected. But when they actually stand in the pulpit sometimes and they say this is what the Lord has said, they will they will hedge it and they will say, well, it seems to me that God is telling me that this is the case. Now, I think that most of the people that sit at their feet are not hearing the hedge. They uh, just believe that it's from the Lord. 
but they built in a an out a loophole so that if it doesn't come to pass they can always say well remember i said this is what i felt was the case that this was coming from the lord again that's something that paul and the others uh who who uh exercised this kind of authority in the new testament did not now let me mention a third point that comes to mind in this connection and that is that uh today's apostles and prophets like to say that uh, they can err and that this is a function of new testament prophets and a shift from the way old testament prophets function well i've just noted differences between new testament apostles and prophets right in terms mm -hmm. of the nature of their actual authority and their posturing in comparison with uh, these new fangled apostles and prophets of our day. So they are projecting their own fallibility onto the New Testament concept of prophecy uh, without even giving any kind of an explanation for these things, much less uh, how this shift from Old Testament to New Testament actually transpired. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. While we're on the topic, Holly, I want to talk to you about this. So back in the late 1980s, so it's 1988, uh, my wife and I got swept up into the Latter Rain movement, and, they, uh, and we were told at that time that God had just recently restored prophets to the church. Uh, that was part of the Latter Rain restoration. In fact, C. Peter Wagner writes about that in his book, apostles today. And um, and so the church that we were in, we had a prophetess over us. And what's fascinating is, is that um, I try to explain to people that uh, even if they claim to, somebody today claims to be a continuationist, that the people who preceded them, they were all restorationists. So we were told when, when I was in the latter rain that God had restored apostles and prophets. If you read Frank Bartleman, the his eyewitness account of the Azusa Street Revival, Frank Bartleman talks about the restoration of the gifts, not the continuation of them. Uh, and so when I was growing up, nobody can claim at that point that, you know, oh yeah, we've always had prophets in the church because there weren't any when I was a kid. Uh, there weren't any when I was in high school. They only started showing up in my early 20s, and there were no apostles. There was nobody claiming to be an apostle until really the early 2000s. And so uh, when today's continuationists talk about the function of apostle, uh, oftentimes I hear them making a, 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 a reference to the function somehow talking about um, missionaries being apostles, people who are church planters or people who are pioneers of a movement. They consider that to, they're serving in an apostolic function, which basically makes me ask this question because I remember where the where the bodies are buried because I've been around a while. Uh, in, uh, in Charisma Magazine back in the day, uh, C. Peter Wagner wrote this article called, Where Are the Apostles and Prophets? And the way he's defining apostles and prophets here, he's clearly not talking about missionaries. Um, and he's not talking about those who are operating in the function of an apostle. Um, so are, are they, are the people in the NAR basically obfuscating and dealing with like two completely different definitions in order to kind of blur lines to kind of hide what the real history is here? What is your explanation for things like this yeah it it does seem that way um so um yeah it's very common for leaders in this movement when they're challenged you, 
you know, on this notion of, of what they're promoting, these apostles and prophets, for them to say, oh, we don't mean, we're not talking about apostles in any sense different than missionaries and church planners, like you said. And in fact, um, in the recent NAR and Christian nationalism statement that was drafted by Joseph Matera and Michael Brown, um, that they they published and that, that many other uh, leaders came on and have signed, you know, when they define apostles, they say we're talking about basically like missionaries and church planners and, 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 you know, you can even not be a charismatic and be an apostle in our, under our definition. And, but then what we do, we, we, we wrote a, a lengthy response that is published at my, my website, um, to this document. And, and what we show is that, as that many of the signatories of this document and the initial signatories, and even, um, Joseph Matera himself, have promoted apostles and prophets in a very different way than just missionaries and church planners uh, in their writings and their teachings and their messages. You can see that these are authoritative apostles and prophets and that they're not, they're bringing new revelation. We're not talking about just missionaries and church planners. And so, so it is like they're, they're, they're giving one definition of they're, they're presenting apostles and prophets in their writings and their messages and their sermons as authoritative as bringing new revelation. But then when they're questioned or challenged on it, they go, oh, no, no, no. We're just talking about uh, missionaries and church planners. Um, and so that does definitely seem to be going on. Yeah. And let me let me show you one more thing, Holly. Um, uh, this is the cover of C. Peter Wagner's book, uh, Apostles Today. These, the, sub, the subtitle is Biblical Government for Biblical Power. Um, he's not talking about missionaries in this book, is he? No, no, he's not. And he's not. And um, the thing is, the other NAR leaders are not talking about that either. And we document that in our book and in all of our books and, and our writings. We show that from their own words, um, you know, you can go to their own writings and their own sermons and see what they're actually saying about apostles and prophets and see if that lines up with, with what they say when they're challenged. Um, and I think people will see for themselves that that's clearly, they're clearly not just talking about missionaries and church planners. Well, and right, they, they do, yeah. you know, <laughs> it is in their writings, it is in their explicit teachings, it's, it's what they say when they're at conferences, whether they're traveling around this country or down in Brazil or someplace like that. And uh, what, what they might say is, but they are missionaries, they are, you know, Christian statesmen and so forth. Well, okay, if you want to use that language, now let's talk about what you believe they're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And so this may be another case where they're prepared to invest safe sounding language with dangerous new theological significance. And that's a very typical practice that we talk about in the book Counterfeit Kingdom euphemisms that they use, language that uh, even the way they conceive of prayer, the gospel, the nature of the kingdom, this is all familiar language. Why not do the same thing with the concept of missionary, uh, you know, or church leader uh, and just mean something different by it than what most people would associate with those terms in order to sneak under the radar? Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I see somebody, when I see somebody like Apostle Guillermo Maldonado, I don't mm. think he he's he's using the term apostle to mean that he's a missionary. Yeah. Yeah. No. And this, the other thing we see this with is the term fivefold ministry. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the 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 con the whole concept of fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, that the church government is to be made up of this fivefold ministry, being these offices, did it, it was popularized by the latter rain movement, you know, as you discuss. And yeah. um and so, but now what you see in our leaders doing is they're moving away from the office language, some of them, because um, it's been pointed out that they're promoting these governing offices. And so now they're not using the term office, like Doug mentioned, they're saying, no, we're just talking about functions or, or sometimes they'll refer to them as the ascension gifts, or, um, you know, we're just talking about the fivefold ministry. Um, but really, um, Typically, uh, what is being used when they're talking about fivefold ministry, they're talking about the governing or the authoritative apostles and prophets. Um, so people need to be very careful if there are other Pentecostals and Charismatics who don't believe apostles and prophets are authoritative or that they hold offices. They need to be very careful when they use the term fivefold ministry. And, and really, we would say they probably shouldn't be using that term because typically what people, what, what people mean when they use the term fivefold ministry is they're referring to these authoritative governing roles in the church. Yeah. Well, notice how they're playing tricks with language here. And we've now noticed two ways this, this is done. One is to take language that's familiar with which we make certain associations that are biblical and they're fine and they invest them with new significance. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, without drawing attention to what's novel and what's unique, what's different about it, so that they can fool yeah. people about what an apostle is supposed to be or what a missionary is or what have you. The other thing they do is they interject new terminology, new language into the discussion, and it means something in particular. I'll give you the example in a moment that, that I'm, I'm most concerned about here. Uh, they'll inject new language into the discussion and then they'll try to normalize it and, and mainstream it so that they'll get other people to buy into the language and thereby buy into the theology. And we believe that that's what's going on with this talk about fivefold ministry. They get the language of fivefold ministry from counting how many ministries and functions are listed in Ephesians 4.11. There are five. And then they've made this their manifesto, and they call it the fivefold ministry. And it's this defining feature of their uh, church practice and their, uh, their, their ministries. Uh, now they're trying to mainstream this by getting other charismatics and Pentecostals to adopt the same language. And mm -hmm. I'm a little concerned that this is actually happening to some degree, where without knowing the history of the genesis of this terminology, in the latter rain and maybe some earlier antecedents or precedents for that, um, they are sort of unwittingly um, capitulating to this uh, new description uh, by adopting language that is really should be reserved for uh, uh, our understanding of NAR teachers. And so uh, when, when people who are listening to us today hear references to the fivefold ministry, uh, we think that it would be wise to be concerned that perhaps this is an allusion to um, overt NAR teaching, and that if you slip into using that language, you're you're actually uh, a party to that same deception. 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Holly, a quick question for you. I, you know, when I read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, I can see clearly uh, the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul has laid out in no uncertain terms the moral and doctrinal qualifications for men who hold the pastoral office, and uh, and not only that, there are there are duties that are listed as part of their function within the church. Where in the New Testament are the uh, qualifications, uh, moral and doctrinal, and then duties of those who hold the apostolic office after the twelve and and the apostle Paul? You know, in in you know in the subsequent era that's going to follow after their death. Where are the apostolic credentials listed so that we can see who's qualified and what the actual duties of apostles are in Scripture? It's, it's not there. And that's, that's something that we point out in our books um, as, as a critique of NARD. There are no, there's no place that instructions are given for appointing new apostles after the original apostles, you know, were, were getting older as they, they knew they would be passing away. You know, they gave instructions for how to appoint elders in the church, but there's no place that instructions are ever given for um, appointing uh, new apostles to replace them. Okay. All right, Doug, uh, it, the Apostles' Creed, uh, that's not a creed that is well, well worn in, uh, in Protestant circles, and you know, unless you're like a confessional Lutheran or a confessional Presbyterian. But in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed, it has language like this, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, when it's talking that way, and you're going to know, they, these are creeds that go way back, you know, the Nicene Creed to the fourth century, and then you can even trace back parts in the Nicene Creed to what was called the rule of faith. Uh, Irenaeus uh, writes about it in his Contra Heresies, uh, the rule of faith, uh, talking about an apostolic church. How is the fun- how is that term being used creedally, and how has the church understood that the church is apostolic uh, long before the NAR showed up? What does that mean? Well, let's uh, take both the terms Catholic and uh, apostolic, because there might be some um, questions about mm-hmm. how these terms are used. This is an ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed. It begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in His Son, you know, and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, many will, will probably be accustomed to hearing this recited and reciting it together with the congregation in their churches. And others may have heard of it or studied it even, but are not, um, you know, uh, part of a fellowship where that's a regular practice, and then some may be new, this may be new to them, but it's a it's a it's a um, an orthodox creed of the church with ancient pedigree, and Catholic there simply means um, a church that is unified around central doctrines, and it's the um, Catholic Church that uh, is we're, we're confessing to the existence of a church that God has established uh, through the Holy Spirit with the authority of Christ uh, to be worldwide and to be enduring. That's the Catholic Church. Uh, we even speak of the, some kind, sometimes we call them general epistles uh, mm-hmm. in the New Testament that are to, um, you know, uh, like, like the Hebrews and others that are not names of individuals or churches. And, uh, you know, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, uh, James, <clears throat> they're named after the authors. And these are sometimes called general epistles because they have general, um, uh, the audience for it is the, is the church at large. And mm-hmm. uh, these are also sometimes called Catholic epistles for the same reason. So that's yep. just a gloss on Catholic. 
Apostolic simply means that the, these uh, we're affirming the um, the rootedness of the uh, church today in the foundation of the apostles of Christ. And uh, as Luke spoke in the book of Acts of the early believers who were devoted to the apostles' teaching, so we are devoted to the same teaching, and that is what identifies us as the church of Jesus Christ. So apostolic there is actually tethered to the authority of the original uh, founding apostles mentioned um, twice, in fact, in the book of Ephesians. All right. Uh, Holly, if uh, if I were to say I have apostles, and I've, I've had apostles since I was a Christian, let me name you some of them. Uh, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, uh, and then we can talk about James and, and, and f- folks like this. Uh, am, am I out of order when I say, hey, listen, the, 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 those apostles, because they wrote Scripture with the authority of Christ by the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and, and all Scripture is theanoustos, it's God-breathed, Aren't the apostles still apostling the church today? Is that is that a way, way to put it? Apost- Can you make it a participle? Are they, they're still apostling, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I, I think you can absolutely say that. Okay. If your ministry is apostolic, it is because it is found. It is grounded in the foundation of the apostles of the first century. Yeah. that's what would make it apostolic. Yeah, so so when I get up in the pulpit and I open up a biblical text written by one of the apostles or one of the Old Testament prophets, I can say that the apostles and prophets have spoken in my church that day, right? And the nice thing is, is that you can follow along. You know, you can fact check me and you know, and, and you know, and read <laughs> along what what I'm what I'm preaching from because it's in a word that is sent universally to all churches everywhere. Isn't there one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it's the faith once for all? All delivered to the saints. Uh, what I've noticed that in the NAR is that although they claim that these apostles and prophets aren't giving us new doctrine, uh, their their new revelation oftentimes strays into new doctrine. Am, am I wrong in saying that, Holly? No, you're absolutely correct. Um, that was something I was going to bring up. Is is yeah, this this kind of is it's related to the point of how they shift meet definitions of the word apostle. You know, well, the same thing happens with Revelation, the the Revelation. You know, they'll say that our Revelation is never about matters of doctrine. Um, but the truth is, and as we document in our books, uh, much of the Revelation pertains to matters of doctrine. And, and, and there are apostles and prophets claiming to give Revelation that is for the global church. Yeah. Um, you know, about like things like the seven mountain mandate, that this is a strategy God has given for the church to take dominion of the earth or... Um, you know, even the revelation that God is restoring apostles and prophets to the church is presented by leaders like Chris Valentin as new revelation that God, that God has given him and other leaders as well. And so it, it's absolutely correct to say that, that much of the new revelation being given um, is doctrinal in nature, whether uh, even though they, they won't admit that. Okay. Yeah. Notice that, uh, you know, <laughs> On the one hand, they do acknowledge the authority of Scripture, and it's always implicit, you know. But, and and of course, their their preaching oftentimes is uh, maybe begins with the text of Scripture, and then maybe it strays, in in one way or another. And there are multiple ways that it can. But ultimately, I think people uh, are tracking with the movement largely for the novel revelations that are available to them through these apostles and prophets, and not because 
of any um, special giftedness exhibited in the pulpit when they just do an expo exposition of the Word of God, the revelation that even they acknowledge uh, God has actually given us um, with, with greater authority. So that's a striking, uh, a striking thing is that as a matter of practice, regardless of what they say, people are hungry for new revelation and not as hungry for um, the long-standing enduring revelation of Scripture. Another yeah. point to make here is that the apostles, you know, one reason why it was so important that the apostles of Christ had been with Jesus, that is, they had served alongside him during his earthly ministry and then were eyewitnesses of his post-resurrection appearances, is that they were the central core of their gospel message and their preaching throughout the book of Acts is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, this is... <laughs> This is not the central core. This is not the core message of the most preaching that we hear coming from uh, NAR quarters. Yeah. No, you're, you're, I can't even begin to count how many NAR sermons I've listened to and even reviewed when I was doing my daily podcast. That kind of stuff makes you crazy. You know, so there are things to be apostles are for naught. I mean, they're not even uh, uh, functioning as apostles uh, did in the book of Acts, right? Nope. Where nope. Uh, this was a crucial criterion for membership in that uh, unique band of individuals because of the, the content of their proclamation. Yep. And the salvation of the world depended on it. Yep. All right. So Christian Hogwarts, Hogwarts for Christians, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we cannot talk about your new book without talking about Bethel, because <laughs> Bethel seems to be at the center of all of this in some way or another, at least somewhere in this, the, the, the mass that other NAR churches seem to be orbiting around. Um, number one, does Bill Johnson, is he an apostle and is Chris Vallotton a prophet? Are these are these claims that they make? You know, because I've I've heard people say, well, I had a private conversation with Bill Johnson and he doesn't really use the term apostle for himself. And that that's just a term that those conspiracy nuts have have placed on him. What's the proof that uh, that Bill Johnson is indeed an apostle or functioning as one or is considered one with in Bethel. They do both claim to be that. Uh, Bill claims to be an apostle and Chris claims to be a prophet. The, now, what Bill will often say and what people often say is that, that um, Bill doesn't tell people to, re, you know, call him an apostle. He doesn't, he doesn't, um, he said, he, Bill likes to say, just call me Bill. You know, I don't care about titles and, and, you know, he'll say things like that. But he definitely allows other people it, uh, to refer to him as an apostle, and, okay. and definitely uh, and and in and takes that title. You know, he'll he'll accept that uh, description of himself. Um, and this is something we document in our books, and um, even a forthcoming book that we have coming out where we go where we go into this in, in greater depth. Um, so, so yeah, there's no, there's no question that, that they, uh, are claiming to be an apostle and a prophet and, and that, uh, others view them as such. And yet in this cagey so, way of, uh, of doing that by saying, well, you know, you don't need to call me one. Um, they seem uh, that like they've convinced themselves 
that they're exonerated from any responsibility of showing any evidence that they really are apostles. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they get a pass. They, they win this uh, narrative through these uh, tactical maneuvers. And so they're honored and regarded as apostles, and they're pleased to be uh, so honored, and they will operate in the apostolic accordingly. Um, mm-hmm. But if you, uh, but they don't feel any special need to give people special reasons to think that they are actually the apostles of Jesus Christ Himself, yeah, and, or prophets now, for that matter. And then yeah. they they uh, they steal from the church uh, the means of evaluating them mm-hmm. otherwise. So when uh, Chris Vallotton uh, gives predictive prophecy and gets it wrong, and it's dramatically wrong, and he acknowledges that it's wrong, he still says, but this does not make me a false prophet. So That's he thinks he's quote. still qualified to utter, uh, to function as an authoritative prophet for the church, even though he has made those kinds of, uh, of mistakes. And then, of course, there are, are false teachings. There are just things that they get wrong in the and in the way that they use the scriptures and in the claims that they make beyond the scriptures. And so we think that if a person, <laughs> the way I like to put it is, if a person can't read the Bible, then don't trust his claim to be a prophet of God. Yeah. Yeah, the, the problems there at Bethel are plenty. And, and so I would note that uh, I, I'm a pastor. And if somebody were to say to me, Pastor Rosebro, can I pick your brain? And I were to say to them, you, you can just call me Chris. I'm not denying that I'm a pastor when I say that. Mm-hmm. I am in, instead just saying, you don't have to call me by my formal title, which still applies if necessary. So when when somebody says to Bill Johnson, uh, Apostle Johnson, he says, you can just call me Bill. He's not denying that he's an no. apostle by saying that. Of course not. No, okay. no. And they can't afford to. I mean, look. If uh, eventually they feel like the heat is on and they have to do something dramatically differently, then they will apostatize from their apostolic claims, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's only so much fiddling they can do um, at the at the the wheel here, or uh, you know the knobs on the panel here, uh, before they lose their special um, defining uh, hallmarks. And so look for them to do things that are more like disguises rather than fundamental changes right. in uh, their, their teachings about things. Yeah, and- Mike Winger just recently did a video where he went through the, the book, The Physics of Heaven. Yes. And, and that, that video went viral. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought he just did a stellar job of pointing out the not only aberrant and, and heterodox, but la- at times heretical teaching in that book. And uh, Michael Brown recently said, yeah, I, I had a conversation with them at Bethel, and they, and they removed the book from Bethel's bookstore. Is, is that a sufficient response if, if you know, to just, well, we, we recognize there's things that are problematic, so we just pulled the book from our bookstore. Does that solve the problem, Holly? No, it doesn't. The thing is, they, so, so Bill Johnson, his, his wife, Benny, who's passed away, they contributed multiple chapters to this book. Chris Valentin, yep. I believe, wrote forward. There's a stamp on the back of the book that has like a Bethel stamp of endorsement on the back cover. Um, it's been sold in the bookstore for many, many years. And the thing is, many, many people have been pointing out the problems with this book and and just the really scary teachings and practices that are promoted in this book for years and years. And um, 
to have it suddenly removed when Mike Winger draws attention to it, I think just speaks more to the fact that, that um, Mike Winger has a very large audience and, and it kind of forced uh, Bethel to pull it because, um, you know, because many, many people, um, including ourselves, have been speaking about, about this, uh, this book for years and they haven't pulled it before. Um, so, and they haven't, and they haven't, uh, to our knowledge, rescinded any of the things they, they promoted in there or repented of it or anything like that either. It just kind of secretly disappeared from, or not secretly, but kind of quietly disappeared from the bookstore with no explanation. Um, that's not adequate. Yeah, this no, is, that, that's, that's not even repentance. It's piecemeal. It's always piecemeal. It's always responding when the heat is up. And if they were, if we were to do an expose of other books that they they sell, and they were to respond in the same way, they would run out of books to sell. They their their shelves would be blank. They would be empty if uh, they had to respond to a thoroughgoing critique of each individual item. And so they're kind of counting on that not happening. I I, I would say this is typical too it, with all the revisions of the Passion Translation, Brian, Brian Simmons' yeah. uh, version of the Bible, where you know, under scrutiny, he's had to make changes and edits, even though uh, the means by which he purports to have received um, his commissioning would suggest that he would have been protected from making those kinds of simple mistakes. But they're very transparent, and uh, they're only when um, compelled to because of uh, the public relations problem. And I would say that not only is, uh, uh, you know, Bethel's response by pulling the book from the shelf inadequate but michael brown's response uh is inadequate when he defends them for having done so and uh this is he is their arch defender michael brown is their arch defender and this is uh this is um standard operating procedure for him as well as to say well i had a conversation with so and so and i i know he doesn't mean it that way and you know or you know we yeah. draw attention to something in particular well i guess i should probably talk to that person and see if he'll make a change and so on and you know this is this is not adequate this is this this is uh just papering over what is an underlying fundamental systemic problem within the movement yeah and we our whole chat, the chapter you mentioned in our book, Hogwarts for Christians, you know, uh, you know, we document that the the new age and occultic, essentially occultic practices that ha have been promoted by Bethel over many years in other sources besides the Physics of Heaven book. Um, so it's not just the Physics of Heaven book. Getting rid of the fix of Physics of Heaven book doesn't fix the problem. These are their yeah. teachings and practices longstanding over many years and also promoted in other books as well. Yeah, in the physics of the heaven, they that just Michael Brown will uh, uh, be able to get out from under the suspicion that he is himself Nar is if he abandons this strategy of defending them as he does. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and I would note in the physics of heaven, I mean, the book itself is very clear in overt in saying we are taking these practices from the new age, and uh, and you know and reclaiming them for the kingdom of God. That is that was uh, overtly said. Now talking about Michael Brown, uh, 
you know, I, I'll put you guys on the spot here. Uh, Michael Brown recently did a, 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 a response video to the extended uh, premiere of the American Gospel Three. Uh, we are all three of us are in uh, the American Gospel Three document docu series, and uh, and we we play pretty prominent roles. Although we we were never on camera together. This is if this is the first time we've been recorded on camera together. But Michael mm-hmm. Brown did something very interesting in his criticism, and. And, uh, and I, I want to get the, the feedback from both of you, but uh, it, one of the criticisms is that uh, the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, also known as Hogwarts for Christians, and there it, it's at Bethel, the, the, the students at Bethel call it Hogwarts. This is not some aspersion cast by some nefarious, uh, you know, NAR conspiracy theorists, uh, but the, 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 the pointing out that they are charging money to activate people in prophetic gifts or or, or or charismatic gifts, and there's a real problem here. But watch what Michael Brown does in defense of of Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, and then we can kind of interact with this. And and even the idea that you go there, you pay money to learn how to be activated in the gifts, that's a very very misleading critique. I might as well say you go to seminary. And in fact, at the end where I critique the, the trailer, I, I make this point. You can go to seminary and there at seminary, you, you learn how to preach or you learn how to pastor and, and you learn how to study the Bible and they charge you for that. So you can go to any charismatic Pentecostal church and say, could you pray for me to be filled with the spirit? And, and people will pray for you. They're not gonna charge you or say, we well, have to go to our school to learn that. Or, you know, any time we want to be released and helped in various aspects of ministry, we can benefit from a training center. But... All right. So... Do you guys see the uh, the issue here? I mean, uh, Doug, you, you taught at Biola for a long time. Um, is is it the same? You teaching apologetics at, at Biola is that the same thing as as you know? And they, obviously, you guys charge tuition at Biola for all the students who you trained uh, in Christian apologetics. Is that the same as charging money to activate people in in uh, in charismatic gifts? Well, it's not the same, and I, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment after another observation. That is that Holly and I have not really made this a core complaint. We haven't uh, stressed uh, this as a major objection to the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministries. There are fundamental problems with what they're doing there. And if anything, I would say the, the, the money, uh, you know, part, part of it is that the, the students are being sold a bill of goods. They're, you know, they're being... Um, trained, as it were, to do things that they can't do when they leave. And uh, they're finding this out. And you'll, you can talk to a number of their alumni today who are sharing their own ex- experiences of this and trying for many years in ministry to emulate what they learned and saw or believe they saw at the time and uh, have failed to be able to do it. So I would say that, um, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And that it, you know, maybe you should keep your powder dry, or at least save your money, and enlist in a in a reputable school where you're going to learn just those skills of ministry that are needed in the church. The second point, though, is to say that the sorts of things that that we train our students in our seminaries um, to do are things that you can learn to do. But uh, the the New Testament certainly gives no impression that there was any kind of need to learn how to exercise the gift of prophecy or to be prophetic or apostolic or to perform miracles. 
so you have to wonder just exactly how do you learn something like that? What are they teaching them? They can't be getting the instructions from Scripture because there are no such instructions. And uh, it seems to me that the people that were able to do those things were spontaneously able to do them with authority, with great power, and, um, and uh, spontaneously. So that's part of the problem. So it does look like they're charging money uh, to teach them how to do something, not only that they're not able to do effectively when they actually leave, but also uh, to do something that you shouldn't have to learn how to do in the first place. Okay, uh, now Holly, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up my Bible real quick here, because uh, I I think that there is a difference. There is a difference between what uh, Doug Guyvet did at Biola and what the 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 teachers at uh, at Hogwarts are doing, and and here's my text and see if see if I haven't see if I haven't overstepped here. Uh, in Acts eight, it says when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on, uh, laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. Is there any degree in which, you know, uh, Hogwarts and other schools, like I think of Jennifer LeClaire, she charges between three and $500 for a prophetic activation. And these other supernatural schools, they charge for prophetic activations and things like this. This has been referred to historically as the sin of simony. Is there any, is there any, any credibility to the idea that these uh, these people who are offering these prophetic activations or uh, offering these uh, these Holy Spirit gift tutorials and stuff like this for money and, and things like this that uh, that they're engaging in the sin of simony. I think it's a danger. I think people who are offering these um, courses and starting schools, you know, supernatural ministry and things like that. Need to be really circumspect about that because um, I think I think there is a danger. I also have seen, and I've 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 written articles on my blog about um, apostles and prophets who who essentially are charging for giving prophetic words, and you know they find ways around it. They say, well, you can pay a monthly fee, and then we'll assign a, a prophetic like intercessor to you, and they're kind of you'll have someone kind of on on tap, you know, who who can give you prophetic words if you pay this monthly fee and things like that. So, so um, it's it's definitely there that that kind of stuff definitely is happening, and, and it's really uh, concerning. Yeah, it reminds me of Miss Cleo. You remember, you know, the infomercials in the middle of the night when you have insomnia. Miss Cleo would be on. You'd have to call a nine hundred number, and she'll give you a, a tarot reading. <laughs> I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's so many things that we could talk about. In fact, I I, I should uh, I, I should throw this one into the mix. Uh, I was recently watching somebody uh, who has a, a prominent YouTube ministry who uh, who's a big defender of Bill Johnson, and uh, and what was very fascinating is is that he was he also did a reaction video to the American Gospel. Uh, preview and and he did not understand why other Christians would be critical 
of of Bethel uh, went during the whole uh, you know, olive incident, where this 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 little girl died suddenly, and for a week or more they were decreeing and declaring that olive would come out of her grave, uh, and and they thought, well, which Christian wouldn't do that? What was wrong with the whole um, uh, wake up olive incident, and why is that more than just problematic? Well, one thing, as you pointed out, they were decreeing and declaring. Um, you know, they were not Bethel. It was not just asking. At, was not just asking God to raise olive from the dead in the sense of making petitionary petitions. You know, petitionary prayer, like. Like you see prayer, you know, the biblical view of prayer, that we're asking God if he will do something. But, of course, it's up to him to decide whether to do that or not. Mm-hmm. And what Bethel teaches and what many in our leaders teach is the most effective form of prayer is, uh, is prayer declarations. Prayer declarations are when you when you speak words like come out of the grave, all of, you know, all of come out of that grave is a declaration. And by speaking the words, um that somehow creates reality that maybe the angels carry out your prayer declarations and make it reality or, or like Bill Johnson has said, when, when we speak, our words have the power to create much, much the way God spoke in Genesis and created. And, and so it's, it's a very different view of prayer that is promoted uh, in the NAR. And that's what they were doing uh, with all of, you know, and they were urging people worldwide to join them in making these prayer declarations. But, and then the interesting thing is though, they know they knew that what they were doing was not just promoting a biblical form of prayer because after the fact uh when when after six days the declarations didn't work they re, they issued a press release you know to the media that was covering this and what they said was was that well it's normal to ask god i'm summarizing but it's normal to ask god you know to to do something and so what they did was they they reframed what they had been doing as petitionary prayer even though all along it had been this declaration prayer, but but they they wanted to make it sound like after the fact that they were just asking God to raise all of when that's not what they had been doing. Yeah. And this is despite the fact that they actually teach that these are two different things, declaration prayer and petitionary prayer. So they practiced it one way and then explained it the other way. Now, what do yeah. you make of that? You know, when God declared he created order out of chaos. When these guys declare, they create chaos and confusion. Yep. And, you know, I don't, we don't need those kinds of declarations. My, my feeling is that it isn't just, you know, ludicrous and embarrassing, but it's spiritually damaging too. And, yeah. um, you know, I don't know the, the family, the couple in question, so I don't know the ultimate effect it had on them personally. And I wouldn't presume to speak on their behalf in that regard. But my feeling is that this is a case of, of uh, pastoral malpractice. When you presume to declare something is going to happen, and then uh, it doesn't. First of all, you do it without authority. And then you uh, reframe, as Holly said, what it is you've done in a way that's not entirely uh, forthcoming. It's not totally honest about what happened. And uh, and so I say that this this really disqualifies this individual from... Uh, being what he purports to be, an apostle. This is not something you would find any of the apostles uh, doing. They would never be, uh, you could never fault them for anything like this ever happening. And yet, they get a pass. 
uh, what else uh, you know falsifies their claims is when uh, they either teach something that's false and then they purport to be prophets and apostles or maybe they commend the teachings of others who teach false uh, doctrines uh, so when you have a, a person like Kenneth Copeland come into your pulpit and uh, you're praising him and calling him a, a brother and you're even saying that God told me that we need mm. to invite him in. That's what that he said. That is a red flag, and it should tell you that this is not the the. Uh, uh, this is a person who purports to be an apostle, at a church where they have apostles and prophets, where that simply that kind of claim simply cannot be trusted. Yeah, yeah, no, I no, I've never seen anything sound come out of Bethel. I mean, not even by accident, uh, you, you know. And so, uh, one of the things that you guys you, you, that make a big point of in your book is that the, that people who buy into this decreeing and declaring that they functionally become prayerless. Can can you talk about that? You know what? You know how does buying into decreeing and declaring make you prayerless? Well, we were talking about we, we were talking earlier about how they will say, "Well, our new revelations have no theological content." Now we've given lots of examples where they do, and this mm -hmm. area of prayer is an example. You know, in theology, we distinguish between <clears throat> what we sometimes call systematic theology and practical theology, but it's mm -hmm. theology in both cases. Systematic theology concerns the basic doctrines of the church. Um, a lot of it's the theoretical propositions that we are committed to. Practical theology is concerned with our practices. Um, you know, marrying and burying is only the, 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 the thin surface of it, but it, it is all the things about how sanctification works, how prayer works, what worship looks like, how intimacy with God is obtained and, 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 uh, and pr uh, restored or uh, carried on over time, how we mature as believers and so forth. This is all practical theology, how we do evangelism, what is the gospel and how do we preach it and so forth. How do we engage culture, apologetics, it's all practical theology. And so they have all sorts of teachings about all of these things and it is practical theology and it's called theology because the practices are rooted in a conception of what is true about God and what he's revealed. So they can't escape this claim uh, that they are revealing novel theologies. Now when it comes to prayer, if they are teaching people to uh, pray by means of declarations and they are diminishing the value and um, saying that petitionary prayer shows a lack of faith and yet this is the dominant form of prayer requests in scripture yep. then it, it's unbiblical and it's a false uh, conception of prayer but if it's all you do in other words if you follow their advice and you fall into a practice of, of uh, declaration prayer which is not taught in scripture and isn't prayer in the first place you might be thinking that you're one of the most prayerful people you know and yet you would be living effectively a prayerless life when it, you compare that practice with what the scriptures teach about prayer so that's yeah. the reason why we've said that yep I, and i think you make a, a valid point all right we're uh, one last uh, one last topic and then I'll, I'll i'll let you guys go but i appreciate you taking the time to you know to let me grill you a little bit on the topic of the nar so uh bob jones back in the day claimed that when the kansas city chiefs won the super bowl that revival was just around the corner uh holly is bob jones a true prophet um, and, and as a result of this prophecy 
legacy of his, should we somehow think that the Asbury revival that's currently going on, that we must automatically give it a pass and just trust that it, this is a true revival of God? We talk about Bob Jones in our books, but, you know, he um, he actually had admitted uh, to abusing his prophetic office that that he had had women, um, you know, in order to receive a prophetic word from him, had to disrobe um, and and um, uh, there was fondling involved and things like that. So so he uh, yeah, he um and he's the one though who is he and is the one credited with giving this prophecy, right? And um, and sorry, can you? <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Can you ask me a question again? So so does because Bob Jones because he said that uh, that uh, the, after the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl, is revival is just around the corner. Can we can we wow. somehow connect the Asbury yeah. revival to this prophecy of Bob Jones? Right. Well, one interesting thing is so when the Kansas Chiefs won the Super Bowl a few years ago, what year was that? I think that was twenty twenty, right? They were saying that was the fulfillment of the prophecy. But the interesting thing is there were a number of stadium events that NAR leaders had set up for that year, about 20 stadium events. And so they thought, okay, the Kansas Chiefs, you know, won, uh, won the Super Bowl. Now the great end time revival that's been prophesied by the NAR leaders is about to begin this, they call it the billion soul harvest. That's a new revelation. Yep. That a billion souls will convert to belief in Christ and it will be under the leadership of apostles and prophets and the, and the church is performing all these amazing signs and wonders. It's going to cause a billion people to convert. And so they thought in 2020, they had all these stadium events planned and that this was going to be the beginning of the fulfillment of that billion soul prophecy, you know, that, that, uh, Bob Jones and also Paul Kane was, was giving some of these prophecies who also, is there's problems with him too um, that disqualified him as well from being a prophet. Yeah. But, um, but, um, and so then what happened though, when 2020 hit and of course COVID, these stadium events were canceled. They couldn't be held. And, um, and so NAR leaders were saying, well, this is a, this is um, a strategy of Satan to thwart the fulfillment of this, of this revival. And so now what happened now that the Kansas City Chiefs want to, you know, again, I think maybe they're seeing this as a as a restart or something like another chance um, for this for this revival now. And, and, and maybe they're thinking, well, it really wasn't the first time the Kansas City Chiefs won. Bob Jones was talking about the second time, you know, and it happens to coincide with this Asbury revival. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, in our book uh, Counterfeit Kingdom, we t we have a chapter on prophecies, predictive prophecy, and their failures, and we uh, classify the different kinds of failures uh, in different ways. There are loophole prophecies, and you know mm -hmm. ways that they can talk themselves out of um, uh, failure to fulfill. And uh, this is what Holly's talking about as an example of this sort of thing. And I was listening to um, Mike Bickle, who is the uh, the head pastor, I guess you could say, at uh, IHOP in Kansas City, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Uh, we've, we've met with him and interviewed him, and I was watching him uh, being interviewed about this prophecy, alleged prophecy from, from our friend, the prophet. And he said that he was never privy to that. He had never heard this before, but uh, it was fine if, you know, if, if it was uh, prophesied and he was laughing. Um, but while he was doing this, he was lauding the, the ministry of 
Kane. So, I mean, Jones, right? Was it Jones that we were talking about? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah Bob Jones. So, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is just not, it's not really a laughing matter. It's a serious matter. Yeah. And uh, another thing that will likely happen in this case is that people will see semblances of revival or things that they consider to be actual vibrant revival taking place right now and say this must be the fulfillment of this prophecy and that would other that would also not be obviously the case and uh, you may know uh, for example of the Azusa uh, not the Azusa that was a few hundred a few uh, decades ago right 100 years ago the Azusa Street revivals but now we've got the uh, <clears throat> revival reports coming out of Wilmore Kentucky regarding Asbury and the students there and I'm sure that people will jump on the bandwagon and say, well, here we are seeing fulfillment of the prophecy that you brought up in connection with the uh, victory of the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Now, look, I mean, what in the world would be the connection between the a, a victory on the part of the, the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl and uh, any kind of dramatic revival? Why? Why, why would that even be a sign? It's just an arbitrary kind of a popular um, event that, that would bear no sp special connection spiritually or certainly not metaphysically with uh, any revival yeah. of the spirit. Yeah. And in, and in talking about Bob Jones, and you mentioned Paul Kane, uh, we can also bring into the discussion Lonnie Frisbee. Uh, each of these men, you know, claimed to be operating prophetically. Each of them had spectacular moral problems, but also each of them also gave notable false prophecies, failure to fulfill prophecies. Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount that you will know a tree by its fruit. A good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. And in the context there, he's talking about false prophets. Uh, that being the case, when somebody gives prophecies that uh, they fail to be fulfilled, and then you also learn subsequently, or uh, along with that, that these people are have engaged in egregious, uh, like ministry disqualifying sin, uh, like all of these men. Um, doesn't, isn't that fruit? Isn't a false prophecy a fruit? Isn't sexual sin a fruit? Wouldn't that mean by Jesus's definition that these are bad trees? But I never hear charismatics connect these two and go, you know, both morally and, uh, and spiritually, these guys failed. Therefore, we need to avoid them. Instead, they always find a way to say, well, yeah, but he repented. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we can't throw out the things that he said and stuff like that. They even did that with Todd Bentley that, you know, claiming that he still had a genuine healing gift, despite all of the, the, the egregious sexual sins that kept coming to light, you know, you know, three, five years apart, you know, for, you know, wave after wave of, of stuff. Isn't that the very fruit that Jesus warns us about? Yeah, well, yeah. that's right. Fruit is much broader. It's the whole package. It is yeah. the personal life, but it's also, and it's also the public life. It's the failed prophecies. It's the irresponsible use of scripture in supporting false teachings and parading your, yourself as a prophet and an apostle without the benefit of evidence. All of yeah. this is fruit. And yes, uh, they should be examined with respect to this fruit and uh, really so much more. 
Yeah. Yeah. So Bob Jones and Paul Kane, you know, they are highly, you know, they've been uh, Bob Jones in particular, highly revered still by the leaders of this movement. And um, and so it's 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 not just like they're allowing that they might be, you know, genuine prophets. It's like highly revering Bob Jones and still holding up his prophecies now that he's deceased and looking for the fulfillment of his prophecies and the billion soul harvest. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's really fa- why God would select individuals like this, right? To be his. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I listen to Bob Jones and I'm sitting there going, if that's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking, the, the universe is doomed. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's the stuff he said was just Looney Tunes. And I, I recently saw a, a thing on Remnant Radio where they were talking about the prophecies of Bob Jones. And they were, I think they were interviewing a, 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 a prominent leader leader from IHOP, and he readily admitted that Bob Jones had given a prophecy about a a particular church building that he said that they were going to be in. They had received confirmation, and 30 years later, they've never moved into that building. Uh, and, and, And what's bizarre to me is you sit there and you go, that's a false prophecy from a man who was morally disqualified from ministry. Why are you guys still sitting there going, well, maybe, well, maybe, you know, you know, it, it, you know and still thinking that, that, that there's there's anything good that we can glean from this these these man's words when he, they they recognize that he's given prophecies that were never fulfilled. So. I, maybe I'm just preaching to the choir at this point. <laughs> Again, the name of the book, if you have not, if you, you do not have a copy. Them, somebody, yeah. Somebody else. yeah, the name of the book is Counterfeit Kingdom. Counterfeit Kingdom, and it's just a fantastic read. I, I think that, that Christians need to, to be reading this mandatory reading. Get a copy of it for your pastor, if your pastor doesn't already have a copy of it, so that you guys can defend yourselves against the uh, this this growing darkness within the visible body of Christ because I think that's what it is. Thank you guys for your time and thank you for your for your work and your research and summarizing it uh, in the books that you write. Look, I'm glad to hear that there's another one in the making. I can't wait to read that one. Hopefully I'll get on your pre-publication list again too because I, I really enjoy, <laughs> enjoyed getting the coffee in the mail going, ooh, I got, I got a coffee before everybody else. <laughs> so, but, uh, we'll put you on that list for sure. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you, Holly. It makes me feel important when I'm not, but the, 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 that's the, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I got to worry so about grateful. my. We're so grateful for your support of our our work, and thank you so much for having us on. And I've really really enjoyed getting to talk with you. I appreciate that, and I, I look forward to hopefully interviewing you guys in the future. So let let me sign off, and then we'll we'll, we'll chat for a second. So if you found this helpful, uh, all the information on how you can get a copy of the book Counterfeit Kingdom is down below in the description. Again, if you haven't read it, you need to read it. Send copies to your pastor and other people. And of course, share this video. You know, If you know somebody that's caught up in the NAR and some of the false rhetoric about this, this uh, video is a good resource to alert them to not only the book Counterfeit Kingdom and the New Apostolic Reformation written by Doug and Holly, 
but also as a, as a as a resource to kind of introduce them to sound biblical doctrine and the true teaching regarding apostles. So hopefully that will be uh, this this video will be helpful along those lines. So please feel free uh, to share it freely. And of course, if you would like to join the fight by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you can join our crew. Uh, that's how we are financially supported. And those of you who support us by being members of our crew, thank you because you make it possible for us to bring Fighting for the Faith to you in the world. And all the information on how you can join our crew is also in the description of this video. So until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.